Our passage this morning is the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 1 through 53. It is a longer passage, and understand if legs are not up for standing the whole time, only as the Lord allows. But we come now to uh, this passage, which in many ways is a preparation for Easter. And sometimes in the busyness of uh, the schedule as a pastor, uh, I find that oftentimes the day of, whether it's Christmas or Easter or another celebration for God's people, it's often the time ahead that I need, because in the moment, in the busyness, I can lose sight of things. And John 11 is an opportunity for us to look at Easter with new eyes and what the resurrection means for us. Uh, Let's attend now to the reading of God's word. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 53. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he lived. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying to her in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. 
And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is much in that passage, there is too much, as there is with all of God's word, to fully plumb the depths of, but let's ask that the Lord would show us what he has for us this morning. Gracious God, we come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that our worship in song and in prayer would continue in the listening of our hearts and our ears to what you would have to say to us by your Spirit that you would show yourself to us, that you would give us understanding, that you would equip and empower us. Lord, would all that I say be to your glory and to the help of those gathered here, would all that falls short be quickly forgotten. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes I get asked questions that I don't know the answers to. I have small children who ask 
unexpected questions. I have congregations that ask sometimes questions beyond my study, and so sometimes I don't know the answer right off. And I know that sometimes that may be true for some of you. What do you do when someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to? Maybe you just guess blindly and hope that they'll accept your answer and move on. Maybe you admit your ignorance and say, I, I don't know, and I'll go and try to figure that out. Or maybe you just try to find a way to inconspicuously Google it so that you can then have the answer. If you're in Sunday school, though, and you get asked a question, if you've grown up in the church, you know what to do. If you don't know the answer to the question, you just say, Jesus. John, my son, is only four, but he's beginning to figure this out already. We were reviewing some catechism questions the other day, and I said, "Who?" I said, uh, John, who made you? And he said, hedging his bets, God and Jesus. I bring that up because there can be lots of answers to the question of what is Easter about? What is this morning all about? For many of our neighbors or friends, maybe family members, it's just a holiday for family time. I spoke to someone that was cutting my hair this week, and it was a time for them to go up to the beach in Maine and be together as a family. For some, Easter is about Easter bunnies and baskets and searching for eggs. Others, it's just an opportunity to uh, rejoice in spring, the newness of the turning of the seasons from winter to spring and the new life it pretends. For others, it's about resurrection. The passage this morning that we just read is a preparation and a lens for what is about to happen in Jerusalem. This happens shortly as John presents it in the gospel before Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry that we talked about briefly last week before Jesus in his last week ends up dying and then rising again. It's a lens for understanding its significance. And this is revealed to us in Jesus' words to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Easter is about Jesus. It's about resurrection, yes. We might celebrate it with festive celebrations and time with family, but Easter is about Jesus. Jesus who is the Son of God. Jesus who is the promised Messiah. Jesus who has defeated our enemies' sin, death, and the evil one. Jesus who has risen victorious over the grave so that we could have life in him, so that we could have God himself. Easter is about Jesus. Just as this passage is not ultimately about Mary or Martha or even Lazarus, who barely, though he has just risen from the dead, barely appears at all in John's retelling of these events. So Easter is not ultimately about us or even resurrection as an idea. Easter is a demonstration of who Jesus is so that we might have him and in him the life of God. I just read 53 verses. It's a lot. 
We have the scene before Jesus goes to Bethany. We have the scene of him meeting Martha and then later Mary and at the tomb and what happens after that. And so I'm not going to attempt to exegete every verse and give significance to every saying in detail, but I hope in these minutes together we can highlight what the totality of this passage is seeking to do, pointing to Jesus. And we see in this passage how Jesus is demonstrated to be greater than death. That as God is glorified in glorifying the Son of God, Jesus is greater than death. God is glorified through the Son of God as He shows us the heart of God. And as Jesus invites us to Himself. In this passage, we see that Jesus is greater than our enemy, death. Many of you know the saying of Benjamin Franklin in a letter he wrote to a friend saying, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. But even taxes can be avoided with the right accountant or the right attorney or the right political connections. And so this great power, death, which no political leader No financial tycoon, no military strategist can outmaneuver comes for us all. Whether we are faced with it immediately, whether it seems distant, whether it is prevalent in the lives of our families or not, it comes for us all. And we may respond differently to that reality, but all of us in some way must contend with the coming of death. In fact, you could argue that it is our fear and our discomfort with death that has so shaped the culture of Western American life that does everything to avoid the reality of death. Some of us respond to it with fear, some with avoidance of the subject, some denial, some fighting it tooth and claw through every medical or lifestyle choice, some with despair. The disciples don't understand the purpose of Jesus visiting a dead man when his life is threatened. Jesus, why would you go see a dead man when you, in your own life, might come to an end? And despite the fact that it was normal even back then to refer to death as a form of sleeping, because the disciples don't want to wrestle with the possibility of Lazarus' death, and that Jesus might be going to visit a dead man and thus risk his own life, they assume he is just talking about Lazarus resting from his illness in verse 12. They fear possible death for Jesus and themselves if they go to the territory where Jesus was recently threatened with stoning. Martha and Mary mourn that Jesus didn't intervene to save Lazarus before the finality of his death. Notice probably because they talked about it. They say the exact same thing to Jesus. If you had been here, then he would not have died. But he has died. But Jesus' confrontation with death in the passage is a revelation of the power of God and the glory of God in Jesus as he defeats this enemy of all mankind, this discomfort that is always following us like a shadow, whether we acknowledge it or not. And whereas all fear death as the end, Jesus can say of this illness that it will not end 
in death, that it will not lead to death. And his disciples say, well, that means he's not going to die. But Jesus is saying, it's not going to end in death. Death might be a stopping point along the way, but this event in the life of Lazarus will lead to something more significant, something greater than even death, the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. And so that power, the glory of God, is demonstrated as Lazarus is brought forth from the tomb alive. Let's do our best not to do what so many in the presence of Jesus do, to diminish his power according to our limitations through our assumptions and our expectations. Because even as Mary and Martha both believe that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death, they both forget the power of the one that they're speaking to. That the power of Jesus didn't require his presence. He could merely have commanded, as he did with the centurion servant in Matthew 8, and healed Lazarus. And even as Martha offers words of faith, even now I believe that whatever you ask of the Father, he will give you. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, she assumes that he's meaning the resurrection at the end of days. Jesus is powerful. Jesus has demonstrated the power, but so powerful is the presence and pervasiveness of death in their experience that it is hard for them to look at Jesus and see the reality of his power over death. And so Jesus, in full confidence, as the son of the eternal father, commands Lazarus to come forth. Let's not miss how dead Lazarus is. Jesus has raised Jairus' daughter who had just died from death. But Martha, ever practical, as Jesus commands the stone to be removed from the, the tomb front, says, but Lord, the smell. This is not a dead body that we maybe have seen when we've done a visitation at a funeral home. This is a corpse that time and the elements are having their way with. And yet the dead man responds to the voice of Jesus, to the voice of God who gave life in the first place. Jesus commands and life must obey. He is the eternal word by which God the Father spoke all things into being. And so in Lazarus' return to life, we see the power of Jesus, the power of God at work over death. But even as this amazing feat is accomplished, it establishes a baseline that Jesus means to surpass. It's almost as if Jesus, as he promises that Lazarus will rise, as he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and then the decaying corpse walks out of the tomb, Jesus says, if you thought that was amazing, wait until you see what I do next. Because one might be tempted to see the miraculous work of Jesus as just the borrowed power of God like the prophets in the Old Testament had. He is preparing to show that his power over death is within himself as the living God incarnate. We see the surpassing power of God at display in Jesus' resurrection when compared to what happens to Lazarus. Whereas Lazarus is compelled and powerless as he goes into death, Jesus willingly submits to his arrest and goes to the cross of his own accord and offers up his spirit 
on the cross. Whereas the stone to the tomb must be rolled back so that Lazarus can get out, the stone of Jesus' tomb must be rolled away to show us that the tomb is already empty. Whereas Lazarus needs to be unbound from the burial cloths that wrap him. The burial cloths of Jesus were found neatly folded where he had laid. Whereas Lazarus returned to life only to die later, Jesus rose to life to never die again. Death cannot imprison those who hear the voice of their Savior calling any more than death could hold on to Jesus. That means freedom for us. This leads us not only to the freedom of the hope of eternal life, but it leads us to the freedom from death and its subservient idolatries. Most of our sins and our idolatries in our life come out of a fearful worship of death as the greatest power. We want wealth and we want health and we want importance because it quiets the voice that death is coming for us. Or it gives us a little bit more time as if we can push off death. If I have a great name, I will be remembered throughout eternity. Whether it's fame or wealth, whether it's sexual prowess, all the things that we might be tempted into in this world are often a response to our fear of death and are trying to take for ourselves some power over death. But when we know that the the Savior we serve is greater than death, we don't have to medicate We don't have to deny. We don't have to try to keep battling against death because by faith in Christ, who walked into death's domain and robbed him blind, we have life. We don't need to buy off death. We don't need to fight off death. We don't need to deny death when we are in Christ, who has power over the grave. Jesus shows himself more powerful than death as he shows his life at work in the raising of Lazarus, so that we might see the surpassing power at work when Jesus emerges from the tomb in resurrected glory. But not only does he show us his power and his might, he also reveals his character. And in so doing, reveals to us the heart of God. As we began this passage, we were reminded that Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan, having withdrawn there after the Judeans threatened to stone him. Why did they want to stone him? Well, chapter 10, verse 30 says, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That was blasphemous to the Pharisees and the scribes who heard Jesus say those things. But here he confirms that truth as he prays. He prays in verse 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. As Jesus told his disciples that what was happening to Lazarus didn't lead to death, it led to the glory of God and the glory of the Son. Jesus has been preparing us. Jesus, through his prayer, is showing us that the Father and the Son are one. So that when we look at the Son, we see the Father. 
And so this profound miracle is not just a demonstration of the power of God in Jesus, but also the heart of God. First, let me encourage you to notice the threefold mentions of Jesus' love. Mary and Martha know Jesus as one who loved Lazarus. That's how they encourage him to come visit the one whom you love is ill. Then in verse 5, John, the apostle, in describing the situation, tells us that Jesus loved all three, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then as Jesus goes, uh, prepares to go to the tomb and Jesus weeps, those around him recognize Jesus' love for Lazarus. I want us to hold on to these declarations of love. Because on the surface, we might, want to, we might be prone to wrestle with how that love, especially that love mentioned in verse 5, is juxtaposed to Jesus' choice to stay on the other side of the river. His choice not to go visit Lazarus while he was still sick to heal him. Or not, as he had the ability to do from the other side of the Jordan, to declare him healed, and so make him well. Why does Jesus stay until Lazarus' death, and then upon Lazarus' death, then inform his disciples, now it's time to go? We need to keep in mind that it is love which motivates his actions here. And we can see that a bit as we zoom in on two of the scenes in the passage. First, as as, uh as Mary comes out to him, Mary has stayed at the house. She's with all the people that are there to uh, be with her and Martha as they, as they mourn and weep the death of their brother. But as she comes out to him, Jesus sees her weeping. Verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He asks where they have laid him, and they tell him, and then Jesus weeps. That first description there says Jesus was deeply moved. And we might think of being moved by a beautiful symphony or, or moved in compassion and sadness. And that's not inappropriate to the larger context because it says Jesus weeps. But that word there, you might even have a note at the bottom of your ESV Bible if you have one of those. It uses the word indignant. When Mary later, in the Gospel of John, anoints Jesus' feet, those who are watching are indignant. They snort. Why would she waste such expensive oil in anointing the feet of this rabbi? It's anger, it's frustration, contempt. The word then appears in verse 38 as Jesus comes now face to face with the tomb of his beloved friend. He is angry and he is sad over the destructive power of sin manifested in death, not just for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but for all humanity. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, 
I have no doubt that Christ contemplated something higher, namely the general misery of the whole human race. For he knew well what had been enjoined on him by the Father and why he was sent into this world, namely to free us from all evils. The evils of abuse. Evils of adultery, of greed, of corruption, of war, violence. All demonstrates its fruit in death. The wages of sin is death. And so seeing his beloved friend dead and the weeping and mourning of those around him. Jesus is not just confronting death, but all that leads to death, the evilness and wickedness at work in this world he made for beauty and goodness. And so in this moment, just as Jesus glorifies God in his power displayed, God's heart is displayed. As God incarnate, Emmanuel, Every display of human emotion from Jesus is in perfect harmony with the character of the unchanging God of eternity. Jesus' response shows us the character of the Lord and what matters to him. God is indignant over the destructive power of death among his creation. In love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, in love for his disciples, in love for the world, Jesus offers more than an immediate avoidance of death. Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus so much that he's not willing to just put a band-aid on the boo-boo as Lazarus bleeds out as one who is dying of the cancer of sin and death. He is unwilling to give a partial healing. He wants in this manifestation of him raising Lazarus from the dead to point to himself so that they might see the love of God that destroys all death. The heart of God displayed in Jesus' raising of Lazarus illumines that in, according to the love of God the Father, he sent his beloved son who came out of his love to destroy that which was destroying his beloved, you and me. The victory over death by Jesus is the result of God's loving initiative to deliver his people from death and its root, sin. Jesus dies as a substitute for our sins so that death would hold no more power over us, so that we could be restored to life in him, the life that we were made for. The tears of Jesus, the anger and indignancy over death's destructive power, his willingness to submit to the cross, his emergence from the tomb, they show the rescuing, redeeming heart of God for those lost in the power of sin and its destructive consequences. It shows us the heart of God who heard the blood of Cain crying out from the ground, who sent Moses to deliver his people in captivity under the oppression of the Israelites, who delivered his people over and over again from death by the hands of their enemies, who drove out the Canaanites because of the abominable practice of putting to death their infant children. 
the heart of God who sent his son to rescue us. And so Jesus invites us to faith in him that the power of God in Christ and the love of God in Christ might result in our salvation in our life in him. What Jesus is doing is more than raising Lazarus. What Jesus is doing is more than showing his power. What Jesus is doing in this passage is inviting all eyes on himself so that we could trust in him. Martha believes in the resurrection. Martha has good theology. She has good doctrine, not like those Sadducees who deny the resurrection. She's a smart one. And that's good, and that's well. Jesus says, I will raise your brother. And she says, I believe that he will be raised on the last day. But resurrection itself is not sufficient for hope. On one hand, because... As Jesus taught earlier, resurrection is, there's a twofold resurrection. In John chapter 5, verse 28 to 29, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is what we understand as the general resurrection. At the last day, all will be raised, some to destruction some to life. Jesus is not content to leave Martha and Mary with a doctrine, with a theological tenet. Jesus pushes past Martha's good theology to her actual hope for salvation himself. I'm glad that you believe in resurrection, Martha. That's right. That's good. That's biblical. The Old Testament points to it. It's true. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It is faith in him that allows the dead to rise to eternal life. It's the rising of Jesus himself, which is described as the first fruits from the dead because no one of their own volition rose from the dead until Jesus did. There would be no resurrection at all without Jesus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And for those who believe in him, it is the means to life. He says, it is faith in him that allows the dead to rise to eternal life rather than to eternal judgment. And it is in him that those who are already dead in their transgressions, though alive in their bodies, might begin to have new life in their souls as their sins are forgiven them and the Spirit of God enters in. Jesus also said earlier in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus doesn't say, I am just a distant hope for resurrection. Even now as you trust in me, the life of God is at work in you. Not I am just the resurrection, but I am also the life by which we know that the hope of resurrection is real and true. It is less important that you believe the fact that Jesus rose from the dead than that you believe in Jesus who rose from the dead. It's less important that you believe in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead than in Jesus who rose from the dead. Now, 
If you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, then you don't actually believe in Jesus. You believe in someone you've created for yourself. But our hope is not in resurrection. Our hope is in the one who rose from the dead so that in him we could have life. If we need no other illustration, we see the reaction of the people. Some believed in him and some applauded his death. Some of the same people that saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb said, that's amazing, this is the Son of God. And some said, this is trouble. I'm going to lose my security and my sense of comfort. In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, the guards go back and report to the chief priests what they had seen, which was an empty tomb. And the response wasn't to say, I don't believe in the resurrection, I don't believe that he's alive. They saw, and they said what they saw, but they chose to oppose Jesus rather than to trust in him. To re reject Jesus is to reject God, in whom is all life. We cannot have life without God, so that is why Jesus came to restore to us a relationship with God that only he could offer as he offered himself as a willing sacrifice for our sins so that our sins could be paid for, the thing that separated us from God could be removed, and in his rising from the dead, offer us new life in him for all eternity. Okay. Brothers and sisters, we might know that water will slake our thirst. We might even know that drinking water will make us less thirsty. But if you're thirsty, you must drink of the water. Resurrection sounds like a good idea. We might even believe in life after death. But let me tell you the means to enjoy that. The means for this power to be at work in you. The means to receive the love of God for you. To remove the penalty for your sins is in Jesus. Easter is not so that we would believe that after winter comes spring. Or even that after death comes life. We celebrate Easter that we would look to Jesus who made the world. Who is the one who conquers death so that life may come after death. And the one who gave himself for us and our sins so that in him we could have God who is life. Easter is about Jesus. Let us trust in Jesus. Let us worship Jesus. Let us love and serve Jesus risen from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. O risen Savior, we love you. We trust in you. Will we turn to you now? moment by moment, in celebration of your victory. Amen.